Last season on The Overhead, we discussed land trusts as a part of a range of non-market housing solutions. We talked to the folks behind the Kensington Market Community Land Trust. The trust had managed to secure a multi-unit building as affordable rental in perpetuity and was excited about a City of Toronto program to help with future projects like the one in Kensington. The Mura program, the multi-unit residential acquisition program from the City of Toronto has been modeled off of the acquisition success in Parkdale that Parkdale then taught us how to do. And then the city has now officially said, okay, let's create a program modeled after these two community land trusts. And based on that, the city is sort of putting a very small amount of money into that program as a demonstration to other levels of government and other municipalities to say, this is the kind of thing that we made possible. We have a very small pot of money. You should match it. You should match it with a huge program that is federal, that is provincial, and that is like permeates regional economies all throughout, all throughout the lands. Nearly a year and a half later, how are land trusts in Toronto and across the country faring? How do they keep momentum within their communities? What role do they play in preventing displacement? And how do they help ensure equity and affordability in our communities? This is The Overhead, understanding Canada's affordable housing crisis. In this special series, we examine approaches to reimagining the urban housing landscape in Canada to ensure everyone has access to a decent, affordable roof over their head. I'm Glenn Bowerman. Let's get into it. Susanna Bunce is an associate professor in the Department of Human Geography at the University of Toronto. She's been studying the progress of the Kensington Market Community Land Trust, and her research provides insight into how community land trusts in general can grow and have positive impact on affordability and allow people to remain in the neighborhoods they call home. I'm interested for you personally as a researcher, what drew you uh, to to the idea of uh, land trusts in particular? That's a good question. Um, So I did my PhD dissertation in the mid-2000s about uh, the Toronto Waterfront Corporation's uh, redevelopment of the central waterfront of Toronto. They had a very comprehensive plan for the redevelopment of the central waterfront of Toronto that really, at its core, focused on selling public land to private developers. And that was a way for the Waterfront Corporation to recoup um, funds in order to keep on doing the work that they were doing around planning and redevelopment initiatives. So the sale of public land in that kind of large-scale practice of it in the East Bay Fund and the West Onlands and to a certain extent kind of encroaching now into the Portlands in those three very large areas, the focus is really on trying to attract private sector interest. And we saw that particularly in the last couple of years with the plans for the sidewalk development, um, which of course fell through, but that was a good example of, of the Waterfront Corporation trying to court private sector interest in leading development. 
So that really worried me um, because once you sell public land, it's very hard, if pretty much possible, to get that land back into public hands going forward. So once it's gone to the private sector, you know, the private sector then sells it to other private interests, etc. So that really got me thinking about what kind of model is out there that's in practice that could be used in order to retain public land. So I started doing some investigative research around what kind of you know ways um, cities have retained or protected their public land. And so the community land trust model came up in the American context particularly. So the there are a lot of researchers in the United States who've done really interesting multi-scalar research about the role of the community land trust in being able to protect public land, but also as a way for nonprofit organizations to protect community land for community purposes. So I wanted to begin, uh, I know you're currently working on a, a research project that is examining community capacity building as it relates to land trusts. Capacity is is a term that uh, I hear a lot and I never quite understand exactly what it means in, in a given context. So in the context of land trusts, what is community capacity building? What are you looking into? Sure. So we're studying how community land trusts can expand their membership base and develop in a way that's sustainable and meaningful for the organization. So often um, what I found through my research over uh, sort of a decade of, of studying community land trusts in Canada and the U.S. and the U.K., I found that community land trust organizations tend to um, have success in some ways generating housing uh, funding, but not they, often they don't have um, support for organizational capacity. So there's not a lot of funding um, that provides that kind of soft infrastructure support to hire staff, to be able to do the work of the organization in expanding membership bases, in doing community planning exercises and the everyday work of applying for grants and reaching out to politicians and policymakers. So all of that kind of relational work is foundational um, for making um, a community land trust grow and develop in a sustainable way, but also for its long-term success. As a case study for this uh, research, you're sort of using the Kensington Market Community Land Trust in Toronto. What kind of capacity building have they done to date and, and what are they still looking to do to expand? So the funding that I received myself and uh, the co-chairs of the Kensington Market Community Land Trust received a few years ago uh, through the balanced supply of housing node, um, we received a small grant to, to address some issues of how a land trust grows and develops um, from from the idea of the land trust. So a lot of it was sort of building the capacity of community members to be engaged in um, and to be aware about the land trust and its aspirations, but also um, building the sort of internal infrastructure that's needed for the land trust to be able to reach out to members or new members and, and fundraise and get their message across. So it was a participatory action research project where we really just had a, a question of how do you sort of develop a land trust, particularly one that's based on volunteer organizational efforts. So 
KMCLT, Cancer Market Humane Interest, which we know as the acronym KMCLT, was focused on on the volunteer uh, initiatives and, and efforts. So, um, how do you build sort of staff staffing capacity or paid staffing capacity? How do you get your message across? How do you build a social media infrastructure that's able that that allows the KMCLT to get their ideas across in broader formats? So the question was really that kind of simple in a way was really how do we do these kind of activities in order to generate so confidence and and ability to to grow on the part of of the organization so one of the first kind of activities we we did was really try to think about how social media plays a role a very strong role in building community capacity in in this day and age so um how a message gets across, you know, in different kinds of social media formats, whether it's Instagram or Facebook or just the simple idea of creating a website that can can contain the information about the narrative around how KMCLT came to be, some of their ideas for going forward, as well as addressing what is a community land trust, so demystifying um, what a community land trust is um, to make it understandable for the average person who could go onto the website and be able to say, okay, this is what's happening in Kensington. These are some of the issues that KMCLT are trying to address through their land trust through their adoption of the land trust model. So we actually uh, hired someone to design a really lovely website that has been able to provide that kind of information, but also allow new members to become members, but also to fundraise for the organization. You're kind of speaking to, uh, you pose a question of what the role of uh, virtual is uh, in kind of building this capacity, but uh, you also mentioned that you're interested in the role of design techniques. Can you uh, explain a little bit about what you're curious about there? Right. Okay. So yeah, I, I was thinking, I was referring to the, the design of a social media. Oh, so, okay. Um, being able to represent the neighborhood of Kensington Market in a way that's visually understandable. So folks who may not be able to, who might not know of Kensington Market can go and, you know, put that into a search engine or put a community land trust into a search engine and come up with KMCLT's webpage and then find out about Kensington Market, some of the challenges that Kensington Market is currently facing in relation to gentrification, affordable housing pressures, and how the land trust is responding to those issues through their practices. So really that trying to create a visual uh, marker for Kensington and community land trust, including a logo. So those kind of things that really, they seem, they sound very simple uh, and something so that people think about every day, but they have very strong kind of signifiers for organizational development to sort of create a kind of an identity. I guess in a way, community land trusts like this are, are lucky to be in a time where these sort of tools are relatively inexpensive, although you you do talk about the need for for staffing and you know if you have a social media manager uh, working full time, uh, you have to pay them. but uh, it, it does seem like a, a good time to engage in this kind of uh, capacity building, as you call it, when there are so many tools available to to reach out and maybe in a in a way that, uh, in days past, it would be a lot slower of a process. You'd be talking about organizing meetings in church basements and that kind of thing. 
Right. So, so the nature of community organizing has changed. I mean, it really has fundamentally changed since the advent of the internet. So, you know, somebody on the other side of the world can find out about Kensington Market Community Land Trusts in a neighborhood in Toronto. So it's very global in the sense that, you know, someone who, an academic researcher or a CLT practitioner in other places in, of the world can find out about what's happening in the Canadian CLT context. And I think that's really profound in terms of how knowledge is shared, how um, promising practices are identified, and kind of thinking about CLT mobilization more globally rather than just what's happening you know, on the ground in specific areas. Beyond, you know, reaching out for potential volunteers or, you know, informing or, or getting buy-in from stakeholders who, who may be in, in the, the neighborhood surrounding whatever land the, the trusts are, are, are trying to uh, appropriate and, and develop, does this kind of help get uh, governments on board? I mean, it reaches a point where I know for, in Kensington, they, they have had uh, receptive local governments. Do, do these strategies kind of get the, government on board uh, at the local, provincial, even federal level? It does. They do. (laughs) You know, unfortunately, you know, governments tend to respond to what looks official and institutional. And so because they're institutions themselves, and I guess in terms of how they might identify nonprofit groups as being legitimate, particularly in relation to the federal government's um, idea and, and legal status around nonprofit incorporated organizations by comparison to organizations that are not incorporated and aren't eligible to raise funds or receive donations. They, I think governments tend to find that they are attracted to organizations that have a strong social media presence and have kind of a, a strong identity and look official on paper and in their visual presence. So, yes, uh, to answer your question, um, very much so. I think governments tend to be attracted to to organizations that have that kind of presence. Looking at land trust from a different angle, uh, one of your research specialties is sort of looking at gentrification. And gentrification, I find, can be a, a murky topic. It means a lot of things to a lot of people. But uh, in a previous episode, I was talking to your colleague, Dr. Nimoy Lewis, who sort of defined gentrification as displacement. And so in, in that context, can land trusts alleviate or even remediate some of the negative impacts of gentrification that we've seen in neighborhoods? Yes. I mean, the community land trust is a really interesting model for addressing gentrification. And so gentrification it's a process of transformation. My colleague at the University of Toronto, Dr. Jason Hackworth, calls it the production of space for more affluent residents. And I think that's a perfect statement and a perfect explanation of what gentrification is. So it's a, it's a movement towards more affluent space for affluent earners. And so when we think about the community land trust model, what it does is decommodify urban land. So it takes land off, removes land from the speculative market and holds land in trust by the nonprofit organization for the purposes of keeping housing and land prices at a lower level for community benefits. So that 
fundamental principle of community land trust organizing and the model itself is really fundamental to combating gentrification. So it moves away from speculation. It holds land in trust with the idea that land is held in perpetuity and in a sustainable way that meets the benefits of residents who want to make sure that land and housing stays affordable. So that's done in in several different kind of ways that have legal ramifications and legal meanings through the ground lease agreement between the land trust and the homeowner, if there is homeowner-oriented housing on the land, as well as if the land trust rents out housing, they have requirements through their board of directors agreements to make sure that rent stays affordable and doesn't increase in the same way we see market-led rental housing increase. So there's lots of different ways that this land trust model combats gentrification through its land orientation, but also through how it sees and manages housing. Now, let's take a broader look at community land trusts across the country. They exist in large cities and smaller, sometimes remote areas. How they operate depends largely on the people they serve. But in every case, it's taken a lot of ingenuity to get each trust up and running and to secure affordable housing for people long-term. Nat Pace is the National Network Coordinator of the Canadian Network of Community Land Trusts, and they're able to provide insight about the different types of trust in Canadian communities and their impact. Nat, can you begin by just uh, explaining the Canadian Network of Community Land Trusts and, and, and the work that you do there? So uh, the Canadian Network of Community Land Trusts was formed in 2017 as an ad hoc collective uh, made up of volunteers from different people working in community land trusts in Canada. Some of the early founders include Parkdale Neighborhood Land Trust, Community Housing Federation of BC's Community Land Trust, Hogan's Alley Trust in Vancouver, and um, several other groups. And it was formed at that time in response to a renewed interest in the model in Canada. Community land trusts have been around since uh, the late 70s, early 80s in Canada and began to develop at that time and acquire quite a bit bit of land. But with the federal divestment from housing in the 90s, um, they kind of they stagnated a little bit and we we saw the model um, just at a standstill. So in 2017, around this time, we start seeing the development of new land trusts, including the Parkdale Community Land Trust. So actors across this growing sector wanted to get together to be able to share information. And for several years, it was quite informal uh, with knowledge sharing happening at, uh, you know, semi-regular meetings. And a few years later in 2021, the network won some scaling funding from CMHC's Demonstrations Initiative. So that allowed them then uh, the next year, they formally incorporated and then they hired myself as their first staff person as the network coordinator. I started back in September 2022. Since then, we've hired another uh, technical specialist who directly assists community land trusts with organizational development and other sort of strategic planning initiatives. 
So we're in a um, a big growth phase at the network right now. We have about 41 community land trusts across Canada, established and emerging. Not all of those hold land just yet, but the the network is is connected to all of these groups as well as allied organizations, funders, those working in policy. So it's quite a broad coalition of actors just looking to strategically grow the community land trust sector in Canada. Well, it, it sounds like there's clearly momentum to this idea um, since its heyday back, uh, you know, back as you said in the in the 70s. I have to assume that's at least in part in reaction to the the housing crisis. Oh yeah, well I think that's it, right? Like I think that because the community land trust is this model of you know community led governance and stewardship of land, I think it really appeals to people that feel fed up by um, the public response to the ever increasing housing crisis, you know, and. I think it's it's pretty obvious if you look just right after COVID, how many new groups are emerging in neighborhoods or in rural communities or what have you. And it's just uh, because folks are, I think, interested to take it into their own hands to find a solution for their own community. You know, uh, th- these things seem to uh, work best when they are you know, not an out-of-the-box solution. They're, they're very much informed by uh, the specific neighborhood that they're meant to serve and by uh, stakeholder participation, that sort of thing. You you have the opportunity to to see a, a bunch of these land trusts in various forms across Canada. I'm, I'm looking for some some ingenuity that you can share that, uh, like I said, every, every neighborhood is different, every community is special, but uh, has there been some real creativity that you've seen that helps land trusts get a foothold in in places where maybe sometimes the bylaws are very uh, draconian or confusing or uh, maybe uh, people in the surrounding neighborhood don't understand it or that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I have, I have two points. So um, the first one I want to say, well, just to hammer back on, um, you know, the concern about bylaws and that sort of technical bureaucracy stuff. Thing about community land trusts that are trying to develop affordable housing is they're going to run into all of the same pitfalls that anyone trying to develop even just a single site is going to face. So when it comes to zoning bylaws uh, or barriers at the municipal level, community land trusts are often, I guess, pulling on the same levers as other nonprofit housing developers might be. But that said, like a successful community land trust is usually a wide coalition of different people at the table and usually city council and uh, other elected officials are at that table. So having quite literally like a direct link inside the municipality is, is something that's, that's frequently happens. And I guess I also just wanted to say in terms of ingenuity, like you're, you're, you hit the nail on the head that it comes down to each community, you know, it's, it's a, it's a tricky position to be in as a national network where people are looking for assistance setting up their own individual projects when it really is about knowing your community, knowing who you're trying to serve and developing that vision and getting community buy-in. I always just go back to the example of Parkdale uh, Neighborhood Land Trust, who spent many years like developing a strong membership of, of local community members before they even did acquire land. Just to say that, like, you know, these these things can take time, but you plant the seeds and the payoff, you reap the rewards um, generation after generation. 
Yeah, and, and speaking to that that idea of a you know broad community or, or, or really reaching into the community, what role can a, a community land trust play for equity seeking communities? Uh, the role in reconciliation, uh, new new Canadians, uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's a great question. The first community land trust, as as we define it, ever it is it comes out of the civil rights movement. Actually, in the U.S. and in, in Georgia, the first community land trust, New Communities Inc., was incorporated in 1959 by a group of Black activists who saw land ownership as key to Black liberation in in the South. So I think right there, this tells you a, quite a lot about the model and its liberatory potentials. So right now in Canada, we have quite a few different examples of equity-deserving communities using the model. So there's there's a very interesting cluster in Nova Scotia of African Nova Scotian communities who are looking to develop their own localized community land trusts as a way to create land bases for their communities and also um, reclaim land titles that have been lost um, throughout the generations um, that that their ancestors are are entitled to. And likewise, there's another Black-led community land trust in Vancouver that's trying to rebuild out the Hogan's Alley neighborhood, um, the city's historic Black neighborhood that was raised by the demolition of of a few viaducts in the mid-century. And then the model is also being explored by various Indigenous communities. So some of these are, you know, Indigenous-led Nonprofits, so Luma Housing Society in in Vancouver. There's the one of their subsidiaries is the Aboriginal Land Trust. So they are they are applying the model in that way, using um, land stewardship as a way to build build power and, and wealth for their community. And then you know on on top of that, there there's um, uh, a lot of um, interest with the potential for community land trusts to be developed on reserve. So it's it's interesting the way various Indigenous communities are taking it up as both like an on-reserve solution and off-reserve solution. And again, ultimately, it's a very, it's a very malleable model and groups, um, it's whatever their own aims are in their own context that is ultimately going to dictate exactly what the model might look like and what, how it may actual, actually operate. I'd also mention, you know, in Calgary, there's a development of the Calgary Urban Indigenous Community Land Trust. So it's it's another instance of creating community land trusts as a way to facilitate reconciliation, decolonization, and even land back to Indigenous communities. And I find it a very exciting sphere of work, and it's something that the network um, prioritizes our support uh, behind. Because it's just, it's so, the potential of what collective land ownership can do for communities that have had their land stolen or been systemically denied the right to own land is is huge. You know, what 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 could happen if, if we did it a different way and it was successful that way? Granted that every community land trust has a specific flavor of its own. Is there something in general uh, that, that you at the network are hoping to see in terms of scalability because when we talk about solutions to housing we are always asking is this scalable i know there's been some government buy-in uh, to different extents in different places in in toronto where experimenting with the i believe it's called the multi-unit requisition yeah. 
uh, something, uh, and uh, you know, and the the local councillor in Parkdale, Gord Perks, has been a big advocate for for that community land trust. But uh, in terms of keeping this momentum and and having the resources where communities can kind of take this power for themselves, what what is required? Yeah, I think there's a few different things required, and again, you know, some of it is what nonprofit housing providers at large need. They need access to quickly available funds to acquire things when opportunities do come up. Um, Right now, a lot of community land trusts, they may get, you know, one-off grants to do a project or a study, but what's needed is that capital that they can quickly access in order to expand their portfolios. So another thing that the network is very interested in in broadcasting more and giving more visibility to is alternative forms of financing, you know, beyond looking at only grants and and running into the trap of, you know, becoming overly reliant on grants, looking at things such as um, community bonds, working with impact investors. Like I think that these alternative ways are going to be extremely critical in the absence of more robust acquisition programs such as Mira. So it's the funding, but it's also it's also how it's accessed, you know. As we've seen, community land trusts can be successful, replicable models for ensuring affordable housing remains in a specific neighborhood. Some local governments and private donors have realized the power of a trust and have begun to invest towards their future. But as we heard at the top of the show, there is room for other levels of government to step in as well. We have heard a lot about the need for housing from Prime Minister Trudeau, as well as premiers across the country. A big buy-in from any of them to support community land trusts in neighbourhoods across Canada and Indigenous communities would help take these grassroots movements to the next level and keep affordable units from being snapped up by a chaotic and often predatory housing market. Thank you for listening to The Overhead. This podcast is a co-production of Spacing Radio and the balanced supply of Housing Node. The Node is bridging gaps between research evidence and housing outcomes, so everyone in Canada is able to access adequate housing and shelter in our neighbourhoods and communities. The balanced supply of Housing Node is part of the Collaborative Housing Research Network, a joint initiative between the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. This podcast was produced by myself, Glenn Bowerman, and Neil Hinchley. Original music composed by Neil Hinchley. Thank you to Tara Fernando for production assistance. On the next episode of The Overhead, Housing for Women Fleeing Violence.